0: Hey guys, it's Briars. Just want to tell you what's going on down at uh, Meltdown Comics in Hollywood. We got Melthology. Melthology is a monthly comics jam at Meltdown every third Tuesday of the month. Here's how it works: show up at the Melt at 7 p.m. and draw a page of whatever you want. At 9:30 p.m., we'll collect all of the art and $3 for printing costs. When you come to the next month's comics jam, you'll get a zine with everyone's contributions inside. There is no set theme and all skill levels are welcome. Last but not least, Meltthology contributors get 10% off their meltdown purchase on the night of the event. Go to at on Twitter or Facebook if you have any specific questions. Ask for Chuck. And that is at Melt underscore thology.
1: Hello and welcome back to Pod Sequentialism, brought to you by Meltdown Comics and the Pop Sequentialism blog. I am your host Matt Kennedy, and I have a special guest this week. Uh, we were earlier uh, last program talking about um, the dynamics of culture and um, gender, and I wanted to continue that in our little mini series within a series with my special guest Satine Phoenix.
2: I'm special. Yes, you are. Aw, no, thanks, man. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and what I wanted to get into this week uh, was what it's like to be a female comics professional. And I felt that it'd be really great to get somebody that I know really well. i we yeah. know each other for quite yeah. a long time. And also to talk about what it's like to be kind of a fangirl first and then like a professional next. And then for those roles to reverse where, you know, you've, you've reached a point where you – you were able to kickstart a project and and get a a book together and you've got an ongoing series and we'll address all the dynamics that are connected with that but um what it's like to now be the appreciated part of that dynamic of being you know the person who has the fans which is nice so um i guess first what do you think were the biggest challenges in really comic book acceptance being (laughs) a female
2: well, I think for me, the biggest challenge is that I have a sordid past. <laughs> so I needed to. Oh, make. do tell. <laughs> I was a model and an actress. Yes. And I did things. Yes. And um, it was really hard, um, it was really challenging for me to step away from that and not use that in my art. So my the book that I'm co creator with, New Praetorians, um, there's no sex in it, there's no romance. It's a we really wanted to focus on making a story, like a really substantial story with intense characters and, like, you can, you can feel, you can taste how dense they are and mm-hmm. how much, like, real characters they are.
1: So I got to imagine, and I've, I've, I've witnessed it pretty much from the inside. Um, you have an attractive girl like yourself, we'll say. <laughs> um, who has a talent? Who is quite good? You're a really good illustrator. I've I've shown your art at Lovelace Zeus Gallery. You've been included in in published projects that we've participated in, including recently the Temple Art Project. Oh yeah. And I mean that's that's no small potatoes. That's a a really kind of important uh, jumping off point. And to approach a publisher or even just to talk to other comic book professionals, I've seen other attractive females. Be completely dismissed of their talent before the art was seen. Oh yeah, and also had it been steered like someone would pretend they were interested, but it was um, kind of like a sleazy thing. Like, oh, oh hey yeah, yeah yeah, why don't you coming over and we'll talk about you know this or that? And I'm sure you must have been. Now have you know what that. it's like. I know, me. right? <laughs>
2: actually, people really um, are very respectful to me. I'm mm-hmm. I'm very tall, so that actually for some reason. That helps, and I'm over 26, yeah. so that also helps. Um, yeah, I was scared, so I didn't approach any publisher. Um, my writer, who lives in Vancouver, him and I just were talking about wanting to make comics, mm-hmm. and um, so we did it together. It's all out of our own pocket. I have other jobs, too. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is my baby, New Praetorians is my Yeah, like. yeah, and it's, it's
1: a – a, <laughs> what a lovely baby it is. Thanks. Yes.
2: But, yeah, it was – it's really complicated. Like you have to go in knowing, A, you're getting into a business. Mm-hmm. So you have to know what, it, what the other people in the business are like and mm-hmm. how you might be treated. So I, I'm respectful to other people. I don't use my flirtatiousness, you know, in business at all. And um, I basically created a book that I'm putting out so I don't have to wait for the acceptance of anyone else. I'm and, just like, I'm going to do it, and I hope you like it.
1: <laughs> and I think that that's really key. And we talked um, in a previous show about how there isn't that big a need anymore to rely on big publishers to get work done. And I think that that's become the dynamic that is not only allowed for more um, targeted uh, storytelling, but has also kind of eliminated that need to, to feed an everybody demographic. Yeah, and I see. I used to see this in the entertainment business a lot, and you'd, you'd go into meetings, and the pitch would be like, "Oh, this is for everyone." It's like, no, no, it isn't. It's not for everyone. Nothing is really for everyone, and even the things that wind up being for a lot of people didn't start being targeted to everybody. It like went art. Yeah,
2: that's how art is. Exactly, you make art for you. You don't make it for a specific demographic. And right. anytime you see something, mm-hmm. like I'm, I'm doing this thing where I'm listening to. Um, audio books and then watching the movies of them afterwards and watching how the books are made. Okay. So they're like young adult books. I'm um, talking, I don't know why, but right now I'm in like, um, I'm just listening to insurgent mm-hmm. from the, that whole series and then the hunger games. But you can tell when you're reading the books that it's from the inside of the creator and they're not like, sure. They, they lay out the story and make it so that it makes sense. But then you see it on TV and you you watch how they neutralize the intensity that the books have. And it's like, I don't know. I, I love making my own book and not having the the okay from a publisher. Right. That way I don't have to wash it.
1: Right, right. <laughs> but one of the things that that definitely shields you from when when you're your own boss kind of, it, except where you're beholden to the people who support if you're, if you're doing a Kickstarter. But specifically, I think that You know, Kickstarter, I believe, is now the fifth largest publisher in America because of the the funding that people get using their platform to actually publish, which is important. I think that that immediately allows you to circumnavigate the types of corporate problems that people who have, in the past, when the situation wasn't as available to everybody, had to go through, and it was the bringing your sketchbook, and you know. Getting a phone call to getting to somebody or meeting somebody at a convention who you thought was much higher up the chain <laughs> and then turns out to be working out of the mail room or something <laughs> nothing wrong with that if they can open the door but the um but that you realize that that the the entire dynamic has changed your dynamic to yourself your dynamic to the other people that you would otherwise have to rely upon to get things done and then the dynamic to the fan base because I think that specifically in the in the kind of um, post-reliance publishing world what you've you're seeing every day and and to s- such a fabulous degree are people that are able to tell their specific stories like you've said and have an audience because people are looking for that type of thing but that they now are able to kind of I'm trying to think of exactly the, the way to put this to not go too much in one way or the other um but that they've got a better level of comparison now to who they are as a writer and as a creative voice because they have not been edited and i don't think that editing is bad necessarily oh, i love editing yeah <laughs> <laughs> i definitely
2: have people come and read my stuff from mm-hmm. friends that are writers um I, I edit my writer and my writer edits my art. So, yes. you know, like that's really smart to do.
0: Yeah.
1: And, that, and that's also an inherent nature of that type of collaboration where you've got the written word and then, okay, well, how am I fitting all this on this page? Yeah. <laughs> Wouldn't you rather I tell this with, with dynamic action or in a subtle way where it doesn't rely on the words? And I think that smart writers have always been great about using the input of the artist to tell the story as long as the 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 meat of it is still there, as long as you know the the specific avenue of intent is still there. But to go back to something that um, that you had mentioned, and it's you know talking about reading these YA books. That of course those were created because someone felt like writing them, and I find that a lot of people, especially in fandom, tend to blame the creator of a project when it gets purchased by a multinational corporation <laughs> who then have their way with it. And I mean that's that's not the problem of the writer. And a lot of times and I don't think people are as necessarily as as savvy everywhere as, you know, perhaps people who Live and work among the entertainment business in Los Angeles. Yeah,
2: you have to understand how the business works. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, that's the dream, right? Yeah. Like, you create something, and then a company goes in and buys it, you know, options it, and mm-hmm. then you get money, and then more people know about your stuff so yep. that they'll come and read it. Yep. Like, that's – we definitely are um, – we have a bigger picture than just our um, graphic novel. We're actually putting together – um, uh, novels mm-hmm. to accompany this. So like for me, for instance, I love characters so much and I get just wrapped up in them and, and like, wow, I wonder what this character was like when they were younger or like, how did they get to this point? So we're actually, um uh, we have books that are going to accompany the, these. So every book is a different, um, so it's about the main character and then another character. Mm-hmm. And, um, so yeah, like eventually you'll have a background for every single character.
1: That's cool. I noticed that uh, a few years ago, and there was a few people who were putting out, they were hardcover books, and they were usually fantasy or some type of genre. It might have been like a Western fantasy or it might have been a sci-fi fantasy, um, often a mix of the two, where rather than illustrating panels and telling the story absolutely sequentially, there was a lot of page after page of text and then sequences, and then page after page of text, which I always liked. I thought that it was sort of a happy medium between having to pander specifically to the comic book world to get the backing for a fantasy project, Yeah. but um, letting that fan base know that the person who created it had a very specific vision about what they were talking about. And when you've got writers and writer-artists who really are able to convey that and have a specific... Uh, high level technique and a good level storytelling craft Um, it's it's interesting to see and it's it's great to see that play out in that environment because you'd see these people at comic-con you'd see them at um, maybe the small affairs and and probably especially at places like dragon con
2: but how many publishers would be able to uh, would be bold enough to pick something like that up right the thing i like about publishers is they have a pipeline but even more so I think the way things are going, at least this is what I'm looking at, is people are making their own stuff. Mm-hmm. They're putting it out there on the Internet. People are reading it. They're getting fans that way. And then they're going to the publishers saying, hey, can you help me distribute this and right. look at my fans? <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. I think that a lot of it is that now that the the creators have done all the heavy lifting. Yeah. And so it's now like, hey, do you want a piece of this money or not? And you need that because you want to have your books in areas that Aren't serviced by your personal reach. Yeah. And I saw it in the music industry when you'd, you'd have bands like, and this is going to sound like a really funny example, but the band Tesla, who had been, I think, on Geffen Records, and I think they got dropped, they were selling as many records as they ever had been through Geffen by themselves. They were really early, like, fan core based group and were making more money as their own distributor, but they still had to have records at Best Buy yeah you know or wherever the the venue was and i'm I'm sure that when they went through Rico or through Allied distribution Alliance that they're probably getting stuff into Walmart as well, and it was really that was their secondary market like that wasn't their first market, <laughs> yeah, so I love that you know there were these these groups and here's another creative you know artistic collective, if you will, who were doing their own thing and really saw oh, well, now let's pad out, you know, we'll, we'll add some more fans to this other venue, but, you know, we really, we know our fans, we know what they want, we support them, we we cater to them. That's kind of the model now. Yeah. Like, that's the new music business model. It has been for the last couple of years. It's definitely starting to be the, the new publishing model.
2: I'm really surprised. So, um, aside from making comics, I am a tabletop gamer. I've been playing Dungeons & Dragons for 20 years. Mm-hmm. And... Um, this is my first year with the book. Um I was at Comic Con and a bunch of people came up to me um because they watched an uh, an episode of Tabletop with Will Wheaton that I was on. And they're like, Oh my god, you were so cool and I I heard that you made a comic, so I wanted to come pick up the comic. I'm like, oh my gosh, this is this is what I want. It's amazing. <laughs> my wife
1: loves Will Wheaton. She's never seen um next generation. <laughs> Has never seen Stand By Me. She loves him because he's on Big Bang Theory and we live in Pasadena. <laughs> and he was on a train back from the first and only Comic-Con that she ever attended. He was in the same car and she thinks that that's just the cat's pajamas. So um, next time you see her, you're going to have to talk to her about that. Oh, definitely. But the, um, and that's another point, too, that I wanted to make because certainly when I was, <laughs> when I was 12 years old, um, there were no girls playing Dungeons & Dragons at all. Um, I got a hand me down set of the original Gygax Brother pamphlets. Like, this is before <laughs> there was a Monster Manual. This is before there was a Dungeon Master's Please Guide. Please tell me
2: you have them somewhere. Uh, of
1: course I don't. No!
2: <laughs> <laughs> um,
1: I did, and I gave away, actually, I think I gave as a present to Christopher Ulrich mm-hmm. um, my collection of uh, Fiend Folio and Monster Manual 2 and Deities and Demigods, the original one that had the. Um, the Cthulhu mythos the the Gray grimoir yeah. um and anmelnabenaan mythos and stuff yeah but that's been through like four different printings they keep taking different stuff out of it because <laughs> they keep losing the rights but um i bring this up because now there's a lot of girls playing Dungeons and Dragons and it seems like i tell people that grew up back east i'm like i'm like you'd be surprised like i i came to when you were doing the gaming night here yeah, like a while uh, back
2: yeah D&D Mel- I started here yeah
1: and it was like all these like, young, attractive girls playing the game, and you'd see these guys who just weren't used to it, and they they were just kind of like... I, I couldn't tell if it was completely <laughs> overtaxed their senses or not.
2: No, this is the funniest part, right? Mm-hmm. So you have... So I had all these girls coming up to me, and they're all usually in their 20s, mm-hmm. uh, 20s or 30s, and this was the story. My big brother or boyfriend, he wouldn't let me play with him, or uh, he let me play, but then he killed me immediately... And then I never got to play again. And this was hands down the story for, like, 95% of them.
1: Ah, oh, this is mind-blowing. I, I could never understand in any campaign. Of course, we've all gone through it. And I, I did my share <laughs> of DMing as, as a teen in, in my early 20s. But um, when I would have a group of kids that would just get into fights over stuff, I just – I could not wait to kill them off. Like, just to <laughs> teach them the lesson that, like, this game is about cooperation.
2: Yeah. Life is
1: about cooperation. But – um,
2: There was tons of girls gaming back then but you didn't know about it because people wouldn't let them keep gaming there's tons of girls that have been reading comics for decades yeah but nobody talks about it and those girls like they're super shy yeah you know and they're kind of embarrassed about it too because of you know the stigma of how the stigma that was in place in our culture not anymore obviously
1: like we won Yeah. yeah the nerds shall inherit the earth the geek shall inherit the earth um, which is true. But I also think that um, that I think the stigma was must have been worse for girls. Oh, yeah. You know, that to be – I mean, it's one thing for an unathletic guy that wind up playing Dungeons and & Dragons. And and I think that – you know, I played baseball. I played other, other sports and stuff. I just really liked D&D. Yeah. It just, like, it It was a lot of fun for me. And I ended up going into the kind of live-action uh, D&D stuff of, you know –
2: the, larping, um, not
1: quite larping well <laughs> i guess it was larping actually Now that i think about it but, you know the foam pad weapons and stuff and now my my cousins are making fun of me i can i can i can hear it already in massachusetts but um that the stigma is so much or had in in the 1980s and, and certainly at least in the early 1990s the stigma to be um in this kind of cookie mold version of what the acceptable femininity was, what the acceptable um, female gender role was, of what the accepted um, fashion dynamic was. Yeah, I've never been
2: into any of that. I was like, oh, Dungeons and Dragons, I'm going to play this. That's awesome. You're like, oh, I see an anime character. I want to spike my hair like that. And of course, you know, kids used to throw food at me, but it was like, that was so secondary. I was just... I had to do my thing and I had to wear my thing and I had to read and be obsessed with the comic books that I was obsessed with and mm-hmm. I never let other people um, change my direction. Like, I found something and I, I had to love it. And well, thanks for paving the way. <laughs> thanks for paving the way
1: there a little bit. The um Now, the gaming is also, and as you said, it's you had people that were coming up to your table at Comic-Con for New Praetorians based on your fame for this podcast now you're doing your own podcast on gaming
2: yeah it's called game school through the TSR network Excellent. Uh, Gygax magazine they're pushing it it's coming back to life <laughs> yes
1: yes we we're talking earlier about um, the genius of Ernie and Gary Gygax and uh, I love that you can say this now on a podcast and. 50% of the audience are going to know. I mean, yeah. it's, you know, that years ago they were like, what, what is a Gygax? <laughs> I'll you take know, two Gygax, please. I'll take two Gygax for $5. <laughs> um, and and now it's, their fame has kind of ascended. And I love that, you know, that the the TSR um, brand is has become as powerful as, as it is now becoming, that there are movies being pitched again with D&D yeah. branding. And we hope, we always hope they're going to be good. We hope the cartoon was going to be good. But um, that just means that there's a big enough fan base that major companies are investing a lot of money into trying to reach them with additional product. Yeah, I, I just think that that can't be a bad thing. Now, I personally haven't played D&D in a very, very long time. I've played other RPGs. Um, I didn't realize that they had gone through, what, version 5? We're in
2: 5 next now, is what they call it. But it's pretty much perfect. They've They've shifted it and made it um they've gone through a lot of different editions Mm -hmm. because you know one just didn't didn't feel right and Mm -hmm. then this other one it was too clunky and too mechanical and it took all the story out of it which is why well i play because i'm Mm -hmm. a storyteller um but five next is solid and you were
1: saying that this helps to kind of bridge that gap between the people that it was hard to get the World of Warcraft type gamers into playing a tabletop. Yeah. And at first that they were kind of going, betting the whole house on that crowd. And then they realized, okay, we don't have to go completely in that direction. We can still bring back a little bit more of, of what was inherently the storytelling aspect of the game. So they've, they've kind of patchworked this together in a way that works. Yeah, totally. Well, that's good. Because, I, I mean,
2: you have a lot of different kind of nerds, right? right. You have your, um, your numbers nerd you got mm-hmm. the guy who has to add up all the things and he has to live by the rule book. And then you have people like me who I don't even, I mean, yes, I carry uh, ring dice with me that I wear all the time. So mm-hmm. if I want to play, I have a D20 at all times. Yep. Uh, I don't need paper and pencil. You and I could just sit here and game right. out of our heads. Yeah. Um, and then there's other people who like the cooperative part of it and like to gain levels. And there's all these different kinds of nerds and like... I think it's kind of brilliant. They ha- they play tested this for a couple years actually. Mm-hmm. I mean all over the world. They had all this different input mm-hmm. and now they finally made something that's tasty to everybody.
1: I remember when um when Magic the Gathering was kind of a new thing and we started to see it build as a phenomenon into the beta set and then into you know the subsequent sets and, and I was sort of surprised that this was replacing D&D. And, but kind of happy. It was a, it's, it was a great um,
2: gateway drug. <laughs> it, it evolved into a, like, a, like a jungle into drum and bass.
1: Yeah, you know, It kind of yeah.
2: did its own thing. It's nice, but I also like dubstep. Yes, you
1: know? <laughs> yes. It was the nine ball of role playing. You know, it, it wasn't eight ball. It was a fast game. And I think that it was one thing that it brought back was a fascination with fantasy art,
0: mm-hmm. which was important. Oh, yeah.
1: And that had gone away. I mean, the fantasy art was was a punchline for the side of a van (laughs) of a dude with a mullet with, you know, foam-padded nunchucks, you know, drinking Lucky Lager. And I, I love that that kind of brought back a new interest in creature dynamic, in building specific types of new monsters, and in a fascination in tying that into old mythology, and not just the same old kind of... Scandinavian-type mythology, but going Asian and going Middle Eastern and going, you know, into um, Pan-Pacific culture and really pulling up some, some amazing stuff. And I think as, as this progresses, as, as role-playing gets bigger and bigger, and and certainly as self-publishing starts to enter this, this market more and more, that you're going to see that Today's and and maybe uh, I should say the day after tomorrow's um, <laughs> published fantasy will have less to do with Lord of the Rings than it will with the Five Rings. You know that it would be much more of like that. Oh, I played this game when I was a kid. This card game. Yeah, you know, like this, and even Yu Gi Oh and those types of things, which I think help build um, an interest in kids to make their own story and their own type of manga, even that's all good that all relates back into making sequential art
2: it's all different it's just different flavors of storytelling really yeah yeah
1: well cool well tell me about new praetorians
2: oh my gosh i'm really terrible at this because i'm the artist (laughs) (laughs) because the way i like to tell story tell about things i'm like okay and then she did this and then this but um This is a a sci fi female lead revenge story about a woman who's looking to find her mother's killer. Mm -hmm. Happens to be the leader of a special ops force. So there's a lot of um, uh, military things. Like, I did a lot of DARPA research to Mm -hmm. find, like, what are they working on right now that in 60 years might make more sense for these operatives. Right. Um, So, like, the first book takes place in Coruscant, and um, she's looking for this terrorist. And then the second book takes place in geneva Mm -hmm. at the cern super collider Mm -hmm. um, purchased by this megalomaniac Mm -hmm. (laughs) and then the third book actually um, takes place in san francisco in this science lab and there's all these different people involved in this alien artifact that the lead character finds uh, with a couple different groups from all over the world it's really hard for me not to say just the entire story (laughs) yes don't give it away
1: make them buy it make them purchase it but yeah
2: so um it's 27 issue graphic novel each issue is about 70 pages
1: that's a big story it's so big <laughs> yeah i was complaining a couple weeks ago about how when i was first buying comics on the newsstand and it would be like you know money you'd make emptying the trash or you know mowing people's lawns yeah. and that type of thing would just go straight into star wars cards and comic books and I remember when comics went from thirty cents to thirty-five cents. That was like a like it, it impacted my life. It was my first experience knowing with microeconomics or whatever, and um, and we started buying. Uh, we started digging for clams and mussels on the shore of um, <laughs> of this lake in Hamilton, Massachusetts, with this property that my grandmother owned, and there was a farm stand down the street that would buy them from us for twenty-five cents for two. And then they would sell them for, I think it was 50 cents each, and which I had no problem with because to me, I was like, oh, there's one pack of Star Wars cards, there's one pack of Star Wars cards, here's a comic book. That's so and cool. And the price went up and I had to change my whole mathematical equation. But um, that comics then were 32 pages and comics now are 22 pages.
2: Yeah. I um, I heard of that. Yeah. Um, but I like Netflix series, right? Mm-hmm. I like novels. Binge watching. Yeah. So it was hard for me. I mean... It's probably really good practice to learn how to make a story only 22 uh, pages.
1: But what a hamperment, right?
2: Yeah. I mean, I get to linger. Yeah. I get full pages that can just be facial expression emotions.
1: That to me is like (laughs) a sitcom-length drama. Yeah. You know, there's a reason why there aren't half-hour dramas. But comic fans have just been trained by the publishers to just accept what comes down the pike. I love that you're working in longer storytelling dynamic. The um the thing that's really held up the enjoyment of American comics in Europe is our format. That they were much more used to reading Sunday funnies like like continuous series like Steve Canyon yeah. and um and old action series, you know, from the nineteen fifties, and even things like Gasoline Alley, which have been around for quite a long time, those were always much more popular in Europe because they would wait and they would just bind a year of stories into like five books yeah, or they would serialize a month of stories into a section of a a magazine like Linus in Italy which would have a, a Snoopy comic strip that would go on. It was like four Sunday weeklies of the um, Snoopy, the peanut strip and then it would be like a really hard-boiled detective series, and it would be like a a really gritty Western. And sometimes these were Mm European-produced, had never been in the U.S. And, of course, when we went superhero, European comics went Western. Hmm. Like they're fascinated with the American West, just like the spaghetti Western films, you know, the the macaroni Westerns, shot in Elmero, Spain by Italian filmmakers. (laughs) And they were fascinated with this wide-open space of the American West. And it was not something that was a common knowledge to your average European reader. So the Zane Gray books that were being published in the, um, in and around the 1940s and, and had been previously were starting to hit these cheaper versions that the soldiers would bring with them. And in Europe they'd trade these Zane Gray books for like, you know, local stuff or they'd give it away and it would it had that value like chewing gum. Yeah. And, you know, and years later, like you hear about the GIs trading blue jeans and stuff, <laughs> you know, things that were, that were hard to get a hold of. So, that has, uh, has proven to be a problem in breaking modern comics into the European market,
0: mm-hmm.
1: whereas there's been such a huge acceptance of European comics in the American market yeah. because they're bigger, they're denser they're thicker not just because there's more page count but there's more story there's a lot more going on
2: I'm a collector so I have my whole house is just full of books so I prefer yeah. to buy a trade
1: one of us one Yeah,
2: of us. yeah. <laughs> I like the way it smells and I like yeah. the texture and I like having it there when I want to access it and it's easy like Okay, I have my Sandman comics. They're you can read the line. spine so you can find That's stuff. That's extra important yeah. to me. Do you know how much fun it was designing the spine for my book? It was like I go. could put a number on it. Yep. Whereas um, I have all I have all these comics on my shelf and they take up. I mean, I'm not going to go in and then tag them like my ex-husband used to. <laughs> but, you know, it's kind of a pain to go in and, and have to take a bunch of books out and then sift through
1: them. Yeah. Um, or have a ramshackle organization of pull-out trays and stuff. Yeah. and Which is, you know, every comic book store has this, and you kind of have to. It's, it's the way that you find stuff in a comic shop. But the way you want to display it at home is different, and I think that part of the problem, you know, in 25 years ago, before the, the advent of the omnibus, we'll say, um, that how could you proudly display your comic books? You could hang a few of them on your wall,
2: yeah, my ex and I framed some.
1: Yeah. I'll show you a picture of my, my bedroom when I was 15. It's kind of hilarious. <laughs> but, um, you know, otherwise it was just these big plain white boxes with covers on them that in between had a bunch of comics which were then polybagged and really not very accessible, which is why they're valuable, right? Because, yeah. you know, you wanted to keep them in good condition. But because trades became such a big business for – I mean everybody from you know Border Books when, when they were a big thing and Barnes & Noble and, and a lot of other companies that have kind of gone by the wayside since as, as um, print has become a little bit you know it's gone through it's its growing pains that um, the the tangibility of a nice object the way that you would display a Stephen King first edition or you know go back further you know some, some HP Lovecraft Arkham House books anything like that that having that spine and having being able to see it on your shelf, knowing that you can just kind of pull it down and access it and look at it when you want to is, is a big part of the enjoyment aspect of why we collect things. And, I mean, we could do a whole show <laughs> on collector mentality and the yeah. things that I've collected and gotten rid of over <laughs> the years. Um, but I love that it's coming back, that the the idea of telling a complicated story is coming back, and I think that there's a couple comics. One comic that I, I haven't been swept up by as much as a lot of people have is Saga, but I appreciate what that comic is.
2: I'm in love with with her art. Everybody, I, I like I like the art <laughs> a lot, art and, so and I and I love that writer.
1: Yeah, but the um the Star Wars um, Romeo and Juliet thing that seemed to be the jump off point in the first couple of issues didn't hook me. When it's omnibus, I'll read the omnibus and I'm sure I will exactly. love it and I'll kick myself in the head. But that page count, that page count was killing me. And I realized that there were big ideas going on in here. That if they could adjust, if, it, if every issue could have been a double issue, yeah. then they wouldn't have had to make those side breaks that you had to make on a vinyl LP. You know, you could go to compact disc. You can have a, line, a long suite. You know, you can go di- what digital music is. It's like, here's a song. Maybe it's 22 minutes long. Maybe it's Dope thrown. Maybe it's a 55-minute, you know, stoner opus. But that it's only bound by the creator's vision of what it can be. And I know that that's not possible for a monthly comic.
2: Yeah. Well, like, it's kind of amazing, Saga, for instance, and all, like, the Wednesdays, Mm -hmm. right? Like, those artists have to pump out stuff so fast. I mean, my 70-page book takes me four months. Yeah. You know, I mean, and that's... I got in a car accident earlier this year so it actually is eight months between issues for me right now and that's like I would love it's a better business model to have it come out more often Mm -hmm. obviously but um, like I guess at what point can you make those demanding schedules and have it people stay interested Mm -hmm. so I think think that's my biggest um, interest right now not fear or worry but like um, just something that I'm interested in is how to maintain interest with having other people like, oh, okay, I'm ready for the next one now, Satine. When is it coming? I'm like, oh, four, four months. Yeah. <laughs> They're like, okay, well, I'll see you next Comic-Con. I'm yeah. like, okay.
1: <laughs> Quarterly subscriptions, yeah. yeah. The, um, and that is always a challenge. And I mean, it's been a challenge for people like Frank Quitely, who is you know, one of my favorite pencils and I think one of the best people working in, in illustrative art. Um, it's not what he puts on the page. It's what he doesn't put on the page. Mm -hmm. And people who haven't had to rely on illustration, creativity to make a living, don't understand that it's an all-encompassing thing. It's not like somebody wakes up at 9 o'clock in the morning, whips out a pencil and works until 5 o'clock and then hits the timer. I do. (laughs) (laughs) I've actually, like, I don't know how it happened. I totally
2: figured a way. But I I start at 9 and I end at midnight yeah so there's that that's a
1: very long day
2: I have really long days <laughs> yes yes
1: but the um, a lot of people and a lot of people who are winning who are winning awards will and I think especially after you win one award when you win one award you then have this impossible thing to compete with known as yourself oh yeah <laughs> and you're already doing that yeah you're already artist. doing that so it's like what's well, line? the race is <laughs> long and in the end it's only with yourself But um, yeah, I haven't
2: even been able to like stop and reread this more than a couple times. Yeah. Because the overall story is so intense that I'm, I, all I can think about is to keep going. Yeah. Everyone's like, are you going to take a break? I'm like, who are you? This is my
1: career. (laughs) But like I say, it's like, even, even when you're not sitting at that table, it's still in your head. I mean, it's like, it's everything that you do. And so you may have finished, I mean, Super productive day. You're Christopher Ulrich, and you can crank up pages like no one's business. <laughs> I wish ten pages in a day. Oh you know? my
2: god! Yeah, what
1: he was doing when he was doing continuity for the Metallica movie oh ten my pages gosh. a day. So, um, say you can do that. Then what you're going to do is you're going to think of like, okay, I have to erase three pages and combine these. Mm-hmm. You know, and a lot of artists don't let out of the bag how much work they put into stuff
2: i'll never look at art the same (laughs) way ever again i mean like you know i I go to the galleries and i and i see the art and i have an idea but then when you look at a looking at meltdown there's just blood and like sprained wrists and aching backs and hours and years not and that's just after they start. That's yeah. not including everything that goes into the schooling or the self-training, self-training, man. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we, won't, we won't talk
1: about the therapy. We won't talk about that. But the, um, yeah, the, there's a lot that, that doesn't hit the page that informs what's on the page. And it's been a constant struggle. And sometimes it's because the writer falls behind. Mm-hmm. And, um... You'll, you notice that a lot of writer artists like to continue to work together because they've found that rhythm and they're like, okay, we don't want to, I don't know if they're superstitious and they're like, oh, we don't want to jinx this. It's hard to, yeah.
2: to illustrate people's writings. Yeah. Like the way RK writes, he writes in prose. So every mm-hmm. panel is a monologue wow. and then I go in and I actually script it. Yeah. And then I have to like, okay, so this is what things are, are, are hap- this is what's happening mm-hmm. And he doesn't say, okay, panel one, do this. He just writes it out like it's coming out of his brain.
1: Right. Stream of consciousness.
2: But I love it because I need that. And I had a friend of mine walk me through how to make comics because after the first, I actually trashed three books because I was like, this sucks. (laughs) So I had a friend of mine sit me down and he was like, that's not how you do it. And then I was like, well, that's how I need it. Like I need him to write me these monologues. Mm. And he, it's, it works for him and it works for me because then it feeds my imagination more. I don't want to mm. have to come up with everything, you know.
1: I noticed a long time ago when when I had first started buying, you know, published comic book art. And back in the old days you'd have the – the lettering was all produced by somebody and it was right there on the page. It was glued to the page <laughs> in word balloons. And sometimes the the penciler would also have done the um, the, the text – the lettering and I got my hands on a couple of Alan Moore scripted Swamp Thing pages Steve Bissette had had illustrated and on the back of the page were copious notes yeah copious notes about what the story was none of which wound up on the page because it was deep background for what was happening in the story and then you'd have other notes Another great one was, um, I think it was Shade the Changing Man. It was a Pete Milligan scripted. um, Well, he he wrote the entire series. And um, there was panel number and dialogue on a piece of paper that was taped to the back with masking tape. (laughs) And you'd flip it over, and sometimes it was that, and sometimes it wasn't. How bizarre. But it was pretty precise. And then I'd seen um, uh, separated notes and illustrated pages of things that Grant Morrison had written for Frank Quitely to illustrate. And it's it's like a book. It's Grant like a ton.
2: Just, um, he's amazing with that. <laughs> but he'll
1: also draw stuff out. Oh, cool. He'll do like little um, mechanical kind of panel presentation <laughs> stuff, or at least on some of the stuff that I'd seen. And I talked to him about it a while back. And he said, oh, yeah, you know, I used to just, I, I, I know I could draw. So I just draw it. But I knew that the people that can draw better.
2: Yeah. <laughs> you
1: know, so it's like it's better to give them exactly what's in my head if I can provide that. And then if they bring something new to it, I'm excited about that. I want to see that too. Other writers are just kind of like, here's this thing. I kind of want this and this and this. Give me the page and then I'll fill in the, um, the word balloons myself. Yeah, you know, like to have that. Leave this space for it, and i oh, it in. So there's so many different ways that it can be produced. But what I find interesting is that, and and here you are. You're, you've illustrated a an action story. You're you're a female artist, and it's about a female protagonist. Mm-hmm. And the writer, how'd R-K. you meet the how'd you meet the writer?
2: I'm playing World of Warcraft. Right on. <laughs> on Twitter, and I don't even know how it happened. I was just in this World of Warcraft phase and I would just tell Twitter about it and I started talking to all these different people and then he hired me for a a different project this is right when I first started getting back into art after quitting modeling and I was like well that's good you know it's a practice project and then he was like you know really I've been wanting to make comics Mm -hmm. and um yeah so he's agoraphobic in Vancouver and he lets me kind of take the reins and do my thing and he likes my personality and we work so well together and we kind of just, it just happened. <laughs> That's pretty
1: symbiotic. I mean, you've got a lot of personality. He's a little shy. So, you know, your he's peanut butter's in my shy. chocolate. <laughs> but the um, have you seen stuff that comes through in, in the script? Because he's a guy and mm-hmm. the character's a female. Do you ever correct anything that oh, just doesn't yeah. ring true?
2: Well, actually, it's really cool. We were talking about this today, actually mm-hmm. earlier, on how lucky we are Because he has very male tendencies and I have very feminine tendencies. And then listening to all these audiobooks and listening to all these directors talk about their movies. And it's like, we have male and female characters. And I give him the reins for the male characters. And I'll add some emotion to their characters. And then, you know, if I see a a girl saying a certain thing, especially Sienna. Like, mm-hmm. she is the me inside my head. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, I would never say that. Like, I'm changing that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But we have that playfulness. Like, we we spent an entire year coming up with a story. He wrote the entire thing. So now we're just going issue by issue, um, fine-tuning it. Perfect. So we are very lucky that we get to play we, – we get both inputs. You know, like, mm-hmm. I'll read a comic and I'm like – would that girl really say that word? Like... <laughs> How old is this person?
1: Yeah. No, I know Bub. What
2: My, The last one I saw was this woman just being stern and then she calls this guy Bub. And I'm like, that. Mm.
1: He is Canadian. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that's probably where we're going to have to stop today. But I, I want to very much thanks to Teen Phoenix for coming in and being on the Pod podcast. And I want you to give uh, a shout out to your projects again. Give some, some websites so people can find your work.
2: Uh, newpraetorians.com dot and RK Cyrus and I can be found on Twitter. Um, I'm Satine Phoenix on Instagram, Twitter, every everything. I'm just always Satine Phoenix.
1: Excellent. And the podcast for gaming.
2: Game School on the TSR network.
1: Excellent. Well, that wraps up another edition of Pod Sequentialism. I am your host Matt Kennedy. Join us again next week, and uh, we'll we'll dig it a little bit deeper again into uh, independent publishing. Until then, uh, we'll talk to you soon.
0: Melt You, the school at Meltdown where they teach you the skills to make comic books. Some of the current classes include creating comics, drawing comics for kids, and the art of inking. Coming soon, there will be classes for short film writing, drawing basics, and kids make zines. Go to meltcomics.com and enroll now.
2: With the Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere.